0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Aaron Schmuckler. Aaron is a doyen of culture. He engineers culture in organizations. And this will promise to be quite an interesting episode, because engineering culture to help companies survive and thrive through COVID and adversity is obviously very current. So, Aaron, could you uh, give us a quick 60 seconds on your background, please?
1: Oh, man, absolutely. So I started off my career, you know, my first job in leadership was taking kids out on backpacking and canoeing trips through the wilderness. And these were kids who lived privileged lives. Some of them were afraid of little things like bugs, did things like taking hair dryers with them on the Appalachian Trail. And so... I learned very quickly my ineptitude in leadership and learned quickly to to get better at it. I'm a theater director by training and by trade, though it's been a long time since I was in a rehearsal room. All that learning has come with me. And I've had a few positions in corporate America and learned to take the lessons that I learned in both of those kind of off-the-beaten-track careers and bring those lessons into companies large and small. These days, we're working with mature and fast growth companies to help ensure that they're ready for whatever comes in this uncertain world of ours. In my background research for you, I see that you almost killed your business partner. Tell us about that. (laughs) So my wife told me she was pregnant, and I looked around at the prevailing work culture, and I thought, my daughter cannot inherit this. This is not what I want for her, and it's not what I want for anybody else in the world either. So I reached out to a friend of mine who I thought had some some unique skill that could be brought to bear in changing the culture. And we started talking about whether or not we were going to found this company together. I thought, what a great way to spend a day talking about this and paddling a canoe down a river. (laughs) So we went down a river that, uh, unfortunately, I was unfamiliar with. He was not an experienced paddler. And we ended up in some rapids that probably would have been fine with a more experienced paddler. And I just never should have brought him down those rapids. So that was my fault. And we ended up in the drink. I ended up pinned under a rock and almost drowned. He also took on a lot of water in the lungs or at least, you know, swallowed a lot of water. And we ended up hiking through an army base with one pair of shoes between us, no food, no water. We ended up in the drink because he did something wrong. But he did something wrong because he was inexperienced, and I set him up for failure. Mm -hmm. Despite both of those things, there was not a moment's recrimination. There was not a moment's finger pointing. And when we finally got picked up by my wife, when we finally were able to kind of get through into uh, civilization after our hike through the impassable forest, we said, if we can do this and not point fingers, then we can start a company together. So that's the short version. Okay, so tell me this, uh, describe the culture you created. Together, myself and my business partner? Yeah. It's a culture of uh, pointing ourselves at a goal. And as long as you're both pointed at at the same goal, you end up shoulder to shoulder instead of face to face. And when you're face to face, fighting and argument can happen. And we do argue, by the way. But we argue fair. We fight fair. We fight about ideas. We fight about what's best, not about character. And so the fighting is productive. And sometimes it gets passionate. But we always come out in a new position. And so that, that tells you something of the culture that we've formed. And by the way, the the end goal is improving the work lives and improving the work effectiveness of the people that we serve. It's a higher purpose that we're serving so it's more important than any other conflict that may come up. So this is
0: interesting. I mean, everything that you've talked about is really about managing people's response to change. So how do we manage the relationship between how we treat people
1: and how we adapt to changing circumstances? That's a What an important question. It's said that people hate change. And on one level or another, I think we all do. And we all also are capable of embracing change. And what's, what, what makes us hate change is essentially fear of uncertainty. Our brains are wired to get us to survive. And what got us to this point is what's been. So we know that as long as that continues, we're likely to continue to survive. That's kind of what's happening neurologically. And so the more very firm handholds we have, the more we can accept and embrace change in other circumstances. So if you think about, for example, the stories that come out of Vietnam of a of a platoon and suddenly there's a grenade on the ground between a bunch of people in a platoon and one person throws themselves on a grenade, that is embracing change in the greatest possible sense I can imagine.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's not a calculated move. It's not, well, Bob has... A wife and kids, and Gary over here is only 20, and I'm 25, so he's got more life to live. So I guess it's me. Yeah, let me do the calculus, mm-hmm, confirmed, jump on the grenade. Instead, there is a culture of meeting one another's needs. There is a culture of serving one another, and that rewires the neurology so that I don't need to look after myself because my team is looking after me. And so that sense of security and camaraderie gives people great capacity for shifting and changing on the spur of the moment. Years ago, I read a meta study, and it was
0: on mankind's greatest fear. And it was just a meta study of 330 different studies. And they came to the conclusion that mankind's greatest fear was the future, because (laughs) with it comes uncertainty. So to build on Aaron's point, the Lack of clarity, the lack of certainty is what fires off our primitive brain. And when you have a team of people around you who are all committed to the same outcome and there is a shared sense of purpose, then you know that you have your back covered and you cover other people's backs. And the Gallup 12 questions survey was very interesting for this. They identified 12 questions that if uh, answered well, it would give an indication that a manager was running the team well. And the question number 10 is the one that virtually every business removes because they think it's a little bit tree-huggy and fluffy. But it is the single most important question in there, which is, do you have a best friend at work? Mm. And what's really interesting about that is the ramifications. Because best friends don't let, let you make a tit of yourself. They don't let you do something dangerous or stupid. And in companies where they really implemented that, such as smelting plants and heavy engineering, where they had very high injury and death rates, they made that the central tenet. Death mm-hmm. rates and injury plummeted to zero.
1: It reminds me of a study you know I heard on a, on a radio program where they brought talking about feelings onto oil derricks. Yeah. And there was kicking and screaming and recalcitrance and you know people grumpily saying no. But weeks later, months later, when they finally did start talking about feelings, accidents and injuries and deaths, as you say, they plummeted because in the work that we do with our clients, we call it Be Obvious. People became willing to name the elephant in the room People became willing to say things, you know, that, hey, uh, I don't know if you're aware, Marcus, but you have a couple of grumpy old men sitting behind you. That kind of obviousness, that bringing forward what everybody should know, but maybe everybody doesn't, saves lives and saves businesses.
0: Interestingly enough, there's a really fabulous example called Delancey Street, and it's a rehab program run by a lady called Mimi Silva. And they have, essentially they buddy people up with the most unlikely buddy. So a white supremacist will be coaching and buddying with a a black drug uh, lord who will then be buddying up with a Hispanic gangbanger. What's really fascinating about this is the level of rigorous authenticity and the opening up of feelings. So they have these uh, meetings every day where they have to open up and they've got to te- um, say their piece. But what's fascinating is that they have a 98% rehabilitation rate. Wow, um, the average wow that's rate,
1: extraordinary.
0: Absolutely. The, the average recidivism rate is over 80% in the rest of the penal system. And they run two businesses, a restaurant business where they take people's cash and credit cards, and a removal business where they take huh. people's property and cash and credit cards. <laughs> And they only have a 2% recidivism rate. And this is really very interesting because, again, I think far too often people are afraid of being vulnerable. And the Latin root of the word vulnerable is vulnerabilis. And it means to make yourself woundable, to put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway.
1: Mm. So a
0: Roman legionary would rip off his armor and go into battle. bit crazy and not necessarily the best health and safety advice but definitely an act of courage. And I think far too often people build this wall or this armor. And because they protect themselves that way, they end up being incredibly brittle. So that creates Mm. uncertainty. So I'm Mm. curious about how authenticity feeds into your
1: work. Wow. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. So I love the word, the use, you use the word brittle. And right. I mean, that just speaks of this kind of rigidity that there's weakness in rigidity where a tree sways in the breeze and, and doesn't break. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have these towering, these towering evergreen trees and they just break off branches. Right. The wind comes. It's like, okay, we can let this branch go so that the rest of the tree can can survive. And then also in your story about these businesses that these criminals are running. There's implied in that they take people's cash and credit cards and that they're taking people's property. There's an implied, hey, we're giving you trust. And this is one of the things that I see companies and leaders really making an error is in requiring people to earn trust. And it's kind of like that stuck between a rock and a hard place of, You can have this job once you get the experience, but you can only get the experience by getting the job. It's the same catch 22. And it reminds me of, of my experience in school. I went to a parochial school for high school where I was in a class of 24 people, you know, religious, moral, carefully raised kids where they said, we are going to watch you like a hawk. You better not cheat. If you cheat, you will fail. You know, you will fail this test and cheating was rampant. Every single one of us cheated. It was, a we turned it into a game. It was, what can we get away with? You know, if I fail this quiz, it's worth it. There's kind of an us versus them and a we don't trust you mentality. Then I went to college. And in my college, there was something they called the honor code. And the professors were literally not permitted to be in the room while we took a test. And at the end of the test, We were required to write a little pledge that says, I have neither given nor received aid on this exam, and you sign it. And in four years in college, I never saw one person cheat, not one. And this was a much more diverse population. So there's something about giving trust that leads people to be be trustworthy. People will live up to or down to the expectations that you set for them.
0: That is really interesting, and definitely something that I've seen. I don't know if you've read Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers.
1: Love it. (laughs) I've read it about three times, I think. Love this book.
0: So again, I think it's really important to understand. For those of you who haven't read it, it's a must-read. But it's really important to understand that the best managers, the best leaders, give trust. They encourage others to have a voice. They manage inclusively. So everybody's opinion matters. And because they are trusted and they are encouraged to stretch and they hold each other to a higher standard, on average, they get 2.1 times more performance than other managers who try to manage in the traditional command and control style where they are the smartest person in the room. And you do get reflected back what you project out. And as a manager and a leader, if you don't trust your people, they will sense it. And they will either play to the lowest common denominator to not get balled out, or they will just give up and say, there's no point. Aaron's just going to do the work anyway. Why should I bother? And then they leave.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that comes up in that also, the, the fear that I hear from leaders is, what if people abuse the privilege? You know, one example is the the kind of the growing trend of giving people unlimited time off. What if people abu- abuse the privilege? Well, one of, one of two things is what happens. In any case, you lose a little bit, right? There's a, there's a short-term loss because somebody takes too much time off. They put too much pressure on the rest of the team by taking time off at the, right, at the wrong time. You have a short-term loss. Got it. I concede that to you. Short-term loss. What you gain, on the other hand, is that after that short-term loss, somebody somebody exercises poor judgment. Well, you have an opportunity to help them grow the judgment. You say, hey, you took off right before this deadline and you put this pressure on your team. And here's what happened as a result. And they grow judgment and they grow insight and they grow greater care for their team. And so at the end of this short-term loss, you have this huge gain because you have somebody with better judgment on your team than you had yesterday or you get the long-term gain of discovering that this person either doesn't have the capacity to grow judgment or doesn't have and share your values in which case you know sooner than later that they d- that they're not a good fit and it's time to move them on in either case you take a small short-term loss and you end up way far ahead of the game I couldn't agree more. And I think
0: uh, one of the mistakes that new managers uh, often make is they tend to do what was done to them because they don't have an apprenticeship. They don't have a runway. And in terms of blind spots around uh, and uh, in terms of failing to create resilience in the face of adversity is that they won't let people fail. And that's a mistake. You should always let people fail. You don't let the business fail. And
1: love that distinction.
0: Each of those failures is a teachable moment. And it's really a reflection on you as a manager for not having prepared them better in the event that it is a catastrophic failure. And I think far too often managers are quick. I see it in sales all the time. You hear people, you know, we can't seem to hire decent salespeople. Well, if we look at the constant in all of those dissatisfying relationships, it's you, Mr. Manager, or you, Mrs. (laughs) CEO. And in all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you. And this is a really fascinating piece around how people take ownership and responsibility for not only their actions, but the implications of those actions on others around them. So Mm. I'm really curious to learn when you are creating these resilient organizations, the kind of journey that people go through and how others in the team rally around in order to start building the culture based on those values that you're all theoretically at least meant to share?
1: Wow, that's a huge question. I hope you don't mind if I take a moment to consider. Not at all. <laughs> One of the places that it leads me, and I, I'm sorry if it's not a direct <laughs> answer is that I think for all of us in leadership, there's a death of the ego if we're growing and really probably multiple deaths of the ego <laughs> That I'm not going to use the French t- translation of the little death though <laughs> <laughs> I suffer this death incrementally of going from being the hero who saves the day and makes everything happen to Kind of being the, the proud bystander who has created in, instead of who gets everything done, who's created an environment where everything gets done, who creates an environment you know as as Liz Wiseman and her co-author Greg McCune describe, create the environment where people grow into their greatest selves, she says something to the effect of the most valuable person in their organization is not the genius but the genius maker. Having grown up so often recognized for my intellect, it's challenging for me to let go of that image of that's what I'm celebrated for and to turn, the, turn what should be celebrated over to others.
0: Well, learning how to let others have the credit is another really important skill that great leaders have and bad leaders don't. And if I'm summarizing this correctly, the ability to give trust regardless of the consequence the willingness to let go of control the willingness to subordinate one's own ego the readiness and willingness to let others have the credit and to believe in the power of the collective intellect to be superior to your own and to stop judging and to let go of attachment and All of these things are really (laughs) bloody difficult to do uh, when your ego is hooked.
1: Yeah, that's so right. And they all, you know, what we're talking about are really kind of intellectual, conceptual things. And so what, what we've developed, we call teamification, and it's really eight principles of effective communication, collaboration, and faith that are operable, that are sticky. You need to operationalize these things because you can't necessarily do it intellectually. You can't necessarily do it emotionally. You really have to systematize it because if it isn't systematized, just like everything else in your company, it will break under stress. Can you talk us through the eight steps? All right. So yay for failing. (laughs) You've got to, and we talked about this already, you've got to celebrate Failing, not failure. Failure is a thing, right? It's it's a noun, it's like a ball and chain. Failing is a present progressive verb. All you have to do to st- it, to get rid of it is to pick yourself up and keep continue. So there's yay for failing. We've already talked about be obvious. Nothing goes without saying. What's obvious to you is not what necessarily what's obvious to me. Do not be subtle. Hinting doesn't work. So be obvious. Anything that's worth saying is also worth repeating. Get it, give it means that you can't possibly have a relevant response to it, whatever it is, the person you're talking to, the client, market circumstances, COVID, you can't possibly respond relevantly to it until you first take it in. So we have to listen in order to be an effective communicator. (laughs) And Would <laughs> you give some context to that? Because that isn't absolutely clear. Yes, thank you. So COVID hit. A bunch of companies just presumed, okay, never mind. Like this is going to blow over. They didn't really take in the implications. Kodak invented digital photography. And they said, we are a, a film processing and paper printing company. Let's just lease this technology that's worthless to other people. That was the death of K- Kodak. My daughter does not know even what Kodak is. Yep. Well, Nokia um, did the same with the smartphone. Bingo. So get it, give it. You've got to take it in before you can respond relevantly to it. <laughs> I'm an interrupter because I think I know where you're going. I know exactly where this sentence is going to end. So I start responding to what I no, is going to be the end of the sentence. <laughs> I, I've been uh, made to do that too. Yeah. Turns out I'm often wrong. And even when I'm not, I've still damaged the relationship. And then yes, and. And this is the most abused and misunderstood concept that comes out of improvisation. The idea being, I have to agree with you. That's that's not what yes, and means. It just means you it, accept that what they've said. It doesn't mean you agree with it. Correct. You are valid. You have a valid perspective. Even though um, you're probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably a kernel even I- inside of uh, the what what sparked you to have the position that you have. There's likely a kernel of truth in there. There's the you know some story I don't remember it uh, of people fighting over some fruit. This group wants the fruit. This group wants the fruit. They can't come to an agreement because it's a limited resource. Well, it turns out these people want to use the peel and these people want to use the pulp. Yeah. But they haven't taken it in or they haven't. Yes. And it, right. Okay. Tell me more about what it, what are you going to do with it? Right. That kind of exploration always yields fruit. Number five, and this is a tough one. It's never about the thing. It's always about the relationship. And so far, all of these principles have been guidance, right? These are, this is a good thing to practice. This is an immutable truth. It's not guidance, it's a fact that, and Maya Angelou put it another way people will forget what you say and they'll forget what you did. And I'm misquoting her. But they'll always Uh, remember how you made them feel. Exactly. So, you know, that comes back to, Things like uh, giving people unlimited time off and allowing them to make errors, right? Is the giving somebody unlimited time off, giving somebody trust creates the structure of the relationship. And it's almost impossible to be relationship neutral, right? Relationship neutral is right is, is just this tiny little point. So if you're looking for relationship neutral, you're gonna fall on one side or the other. So you better be building the relationship with every interaction. Number six. Make your partner look good, and that's certainly related to. It's never about the thing; it's always about the relationship. You're building up. You build up others, right? So if you think about the, the story where where my partner and I almost killed each other, right? There's no there's no finger pointing. Instead, there's focusing on purpose. I can't count the number of times we thanked each other for you know little things, holding a branch, whatever it is. Make your partner look good, and this is critical in sales, right? And this is actually something that I continue to, to, to work on, is you have to leave your prospect feeling good about themselves. You're there to, in some ways, help address what they're doing wrong. You still have to leave them feeling good about themselves in order to build a, an effective relationship. Number seven, be specific. Absolutely. Uh, ambiguity
0: is the mother of all fuck-ups. If you want to guarantee mismatched expectations, confusion, dissatisfaction down the road, be vague,
1: be unclear. And you know, one of the places that I see this, people ask me often, leaders ask me, how do I get my people to be more accountable? Accountable turns out to be a very nonspecific word. I think of it as having four components. If you want to, we can go into what they are. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so there's responsibility. What's your job? Do we have crystal clarity between us? Have we been specific and clear and thorough about what the expectations are? If not, you're not necessarily going to do all the things that you're responsible for. So there's a spiraling in on mutual understanding that's thorough and specific about what you're responsible for. Then there is reliability. Do you do what you say you're going to do? If you say you're going to show up at 8 a.m., are you here at 8am or are you here at 801 or are you here at 830 or are you here at 745 so are you meeting the standard or exceeding the standard or somehow not meeting under the standard and what is the margin by which you're meeting or not meeting the standard that's reliability then there's effectiveness and here's another place where you have to have specificity and clarity and mutual uh, agreement is Are you getting the results that we are intending? So if you're responsible for making 30 sales calls and you do make 30 sales calls, then you're reliable. And if you're intended to close two of those, but you don't close any, then you've been then, then you know what your responsibilities are. You've been reliable, you've not been effective. And so then ownership is the last component. Are you willing and able? to connect your actions, your behavior, to the results that you're getting. And you can't adapt unless you have ownership. So those are the four components of of accountability. And what I see leaders doing is they talk to their people about whether they've been accountable or not, and they end up in conflict or they end up not getting traction because they haven't been specific enough. Okay, I'm going to come back to unpack all of that, but let's deal with number eight. (laughs) Number eight, move the action forward. So, you know, if I say, hey, Marcus, this has been great, let's get together again, I haven't really moved the action forward. If I say,
0: there has to be a clear
1: future agreed, mutually agreed, mutually accepted next step. Or if you say, hey, you know, let's get together on October 5th at 2 p.m at the pub on the corner, and I say, oh, I don't think that's going to work for me on that day. I have not moved the action forward. Uh, How about the seventh? Yeah, That moves the action forward. So
0: again, there are some really simple rules that if you're going to reach these kind of uh, agreements effectively, then both sides need to be comfortable. They both need to accept it. They need to agree exactly. So my version of blue has to be exactly the same Pantone as yours, or we don't have mutual uh, agreement. We both have to understand the same outcome and intent. And we both have to mutual agreement, acceptance, understanding, comfort, and commitment. We both have to commit equally. And again, I see this happen often in sales, where salespeople agree to take on a whole load of homework Uh, without getting equal homework back from their customer or their prospect. And so they end up being run ragged because not only have they done that, but they also haven't agreed that clear next step. So then they spend 80% of their working life chasing people they should have disqualified or closed on the last conversation. And when you look at things like reliability and being responsible, You also need to look, I think, at relevance as well. It's very important that you build relevance into the whole management and leadership picture. Because if people don't see what's in it for me and what's in it for our team and what's in it for our customer, then chances are you won't get that level of commitment that you need. And I I think far, far too few people actually think before they ask people to do stuff and they haven't planned. (laughs) They haven't done the rehearsal time. And when you were talking about effectiveness, it's all fine and dandy, people doing a whole load of behavior, but they don't ever seem to ask the question, well, why do we still do this? Yeah. In this day and age, it makes absolutely no sense to play the numbers game in sales. I don't know if you've ever seen the statistics on this, but it's truly depressing that in COVID, On average, to get an opportunity to advance to a second meeting, if you are manually dialing and making cold calls, you will have to make 3,240 cold calls to get one meeting to advance to a second meeting. Wow. Precisely. Now, can you think of, just think about this. Can you think of any other department where that level of inefficiency is even remotely acceptable? No. (laughs) Oh, my. The statistics are, and this is based on 40 million cold calls a year, it takes 33 dial attempts to get one effective unless you're calling a senior exec in IT, in which case it's 46 dial attempts to get one uh, effective. (laughs) Only one in 14 effectives advance to a first meeting, and only one in eight first meetings result in a second meeting. Now, with those multipliers working against you, surely... Somewhere along the lines, someone has to say, God, give me some insight. Why? Why do we do this? But then on top of that, you've got marketing inflicting 4.8 quadrillion adverts a year on the unsuspecting public that get only one click or none. And then people wonder, why is it our marketing isn't working? And you combine those two acts of idiocy, and you've just got to say to yourself, this is broken. But no one seems to be taking the the challenge to
1: leadership, because that's how leaders got successful. And this is is what my job is, right? My job is making cold calls. My job is creating these advertisements. And what doesn't happen, I think, to your point, is nobody says, okay, hold. stop the presses, here's what's obvious. We're spinning our wheels. We have to stop, take the short-term hit so that we can sit down and look at the reality and leaders insulate their people from reality all the time to their detriment. We have to wallow (laughs) and really get painfully intimate with reality before we have to get it Before we give it, we have to get it before we then respond uh, because what's happening now does not work. Well, again, this is a trip to the
0: woodshed for those of you who think that that kind of behavior is acceptable. When you consider the impact on your staff and on their morale and the constant frustration, and so, quick thought experiment. Uh, You have the option of making a quarter of a million a year, working for a big consultancy, and your job is to produce PowerPoint presentations, and you give them to somebody who doesn't even look at them and just puts them straight in the shredder. How long do you reckon you can actually put up with that before you decide, you know, I'm going to go and work for a nonprofit where I can get my soul fed?
1: (laughs) I think it depends on the character. I forget who wrote, uh, I think there's a book called Bullshit Jobs, right? Right. That's a bullshit job. So a bullshit job is one in which somebody spends time and effort, or maybe even just time, with no productive outcome. Not because of their own self, but because the the job is designed to create bullshit. I don't remember the number. I'm sure uh, this is kind of like a traumatic repression. But the number of bullshit jobs out there is just... Heartbreaking.
0: This then raises yet another question because the values and the objectives that drive investors and the ripple effect that that has on leadership and the trickle down, n- negative trickle-down effect that that has on managers and then the impact that has on your employees, particularly frontline sales staff or frontline service personnel. And then the knock on effect that that has on your customers and the impact that has on your churn rate. If you suffer from a 15% turnover of customers over three years, you've lost 49% of your customers, which means that that creates more pressure at the front end to replace them just to stand still. And then you hear these cold blooded, soulless capitalist, allegedly savvy investors. Propagating that system of uh, management abuse and saying, oh, well, you know, this is a, uh, a great business model. It bloody well isn't. It's just stupid. For some reason, just because they have money, it uh, affords them the right to destroy perfectly good companies. <laughs> there are good investors out there. Don't get me wrong. I'd like to meet one, but. <laughs> The majority of them are no better than speculators and gamblers.
1: And I, I wonder, Marcus, because there's, um, you know, there's mo- mobs are a thing, right? The mind of a mob is a thing. Yeah. And so I wonder how many indiv- and this is really, like, I have no idea. This is a brand new thought for me as a result of what you're saying, is I wonder how much of that behavior is investor mob mentality as opposed to the actual thoughts of one individual investor. And what would happen if some excellent facilitator were to work with one investor at a time? Not that this is practical. I just wonder what would happen. It's it's a thought experiment.
0: I have another thought experiment. What if an investment group allowed the investees to be supported in such a way that they focused exclusively obsessively on ensuring customers get their needs met, that the customer's outcomes were paramount. And from there, you recruited salespeople and marketers who were obsessed with the customer's success. And you compensated people, especially heavily, for when the customer achieves their desired intended outcome. And You compensate people a little at the front end for the win of the new logo and the transaction. You compensate them well for adoption and for consumption. You compensate them for the outcome. And you compensate them particularly heavily for the third renewal. Mm. What would that do in terms of creating value within your business, create retention, making you a destination employer, reducing staff turnover, increasing loyalty, and generating a mass of referrals. And heaven forbid, you actually treated your partners well. Because if you think about it, if, um, if you think about a pyramid, and at the top of the pyramid, you have hot prospects. And those are normally your existing customers. Then you have warm prospects, and those are referrals. And then you have cold, which is the bulk of what most of you Egypts out there are encouraging people to uh, go after. What if there was another layer, which was partners? And I I just imagine this. There's you at the center, and all the way around the outside, there are all these cold prospects. But now you start to work strategically with strategic alliance partners. And they all have hot contacts within those prospects who, for you, are cold, but for them, are hot. And now you start to ally yourself with your competition, with companies that are in a related space then what you would find is instead of vast amounts of money going out of your business in marketing and a thin trickle coming in in sales you would have a tiny amount going out in marketing and a floodgate of sales coming in i mean what well, you know what would that take simply a shift
1: in thinking yeah yeah, you know, as you're talking, I think about uh, one of the one of the thoughts that occurred to me, and I hope I hope you don't mind if I kind of go off. No, on no, no, that's that's why we're here. You know, people talk about job satisfaction. Like, what a what a what a pathetic standard. Uh, oh, are you yeah. satisfied? Are you satisfied in your job? Yes. Ah, yay!
0: <laughs> you spend twelve to fourteen hours a day at
1: it, and you're you know, worried I get, I get, about that. I mean, I can just imagine my heartache if my wife were to say to me, I'm satisfied (laughs) in our marriage. You know, you asked what what would happen if you measured and rewarded people for their obsession with with customer satisfaction, right? With customer success. Customer
0: outcome, customer
1: success, yeah. Yeah. So then it depends. And this brings us back to accountability in a way, is that... think about if you think about a call center call center reps are rewarded for single call resolution and for not escalating the call and then they're not given the authority to satisfy the callers Hmm. so what you describe would be fantastic would undoubtedly yield tremendous results for the company and for the customer and for the employee provided that you push decision-making down and giving and give people the authority to actually Absolutely. drive that success. Uh, and this is
0: where you have to give trust. My pal, uh, so, Dave Green. Uh, are you pal, familiar
1: with this book? Joy at Work. Uh, I've come across it. I haven't read it yet. So Dennis Bache was the CEO of a major power company. And he did precisely that. He pushed decision-making down. And that worked fantastically you know, profits went up, all kinds of things, waste went down. And then something happened in the market and the stock dropped and the investors panicked and fired him. It's a fascinating book. I recommend it to everybody. And to your point about investors, they are not necessarily taking the long view. They're not necessarily taking into account all of the factors. They are so reactive that it's hard for A leader of a publicly traded company, or any company with investors, to exercise wisdom. And this
0: is where I think we are in the deepest, deepest shit. Because (laughs) we're up against China, and Chinese companies have a very collective, very authoritarian approach. But they work on 100-year plans. Mm -hmm. And we're operating on quarterly reporting cycles. And one or two bad quarters is the end of a CEO's career. And it means that the share price will plummet. Uh, They become subject to corporate raiders. Again, another byproduct of Satan's lieutenant, Milton Friedman, who um, came up with the ludicrous idea that every business should serve shareholder value as its primary purpose. What an idiotic idea. The last people it should serve are the shareholders, because ultimately, they're the beneficiary of um, the ownership. And if they treat their people well, who will in turn treat their customers well, they will drive revenues and profits and the value in the business will grow. And the last 40 years has seen capitalism, investment, and sales and marketing take a terrible wrong turn. I'm by no means a fluffy, bunny-hugging socialist, but what I am absolutely against is the rapacious, selfish capitalism that has evolved over the last 40 years, where the people who are, have most at stake are the people who have the least say and are often punished by greedy few. And it's not about being anti-capitalist. I'm absolutely pro-capitalism, but I believe that companies should serve their community, should serve their people, should serve their suppliers and above all should serve their customers and if you th- that's the reason we exist it's been lost as a result we now have what passes for great in sales being a selfish transactional self-orientated greedy money-orientated salesperson is held up as the pinnacle of what's
1: great in sales and I'll Bad. even say, if I'm if I may, that it's not the salesperson's fault. No. We truly are tribal. No matter our our moral fortitude, we are so influenceable by power, by our addiction to shelter and food and clothing that we are we are bendable, we are malleable. And so you look to Wells Fargo. which has exactly the influences that you're talking about. Instead of serving people, we are, we're about more accounts, more accounts, more accounts, not serve the customer, serve the customer, serve the customer. And so you get good people doing immoral things in order to belong as part of the tribe. And it's, it's neurology, not not immorality at the front lines that leads to this problem. I agree. The challenge here, though, is that it starts at the top.
0: And if the people at the top, I've recently worked with a number of close colleagues, and we've launched a, a, a community called Sales, A Force for Good. And we're taking the gnarliest, most difficult, uncomfortable, challenging questions we can out to the market. So what needs to change in terms of leadership, compensation, measurement, and culture for any positive change in sales to be sustainable? What needs to change in who and how we recruit in sales for the customer to feel safe? What do we need to do in terms of restructuring the entire revenue operation, marketing, sales, customer success, account growth, professional services, and all ancillary Related functions for the customer to be at the heart of everything a business does, and what needs to change in terms of the investment model for any of that to be possible.
1: Is that a question for me? (laughs) It's
0: well, it's a it's a broader question. Yeah,
1: that's a huge question, and the 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 thought, the only thought that comes to mind immediately is is aligning of interests, right? You know, I think about it in my own in my own field of essentially kind of consulting and training and in so many service service fields, what happens when we charge hourly, I refuse to charge hourly. Absolutely. Because game. Uh, a, it's just too much work for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a mind to track my hours. Does anyone second, you Secondly, time? it puts us at, it puts us at, it's a conflict of interest. Absolutely. Because the more hours I work, the more that I make, the fewer hours I work, the less I make. It should be about the outcome. How do we align interests? So two interrupters, both together. Sorry, my fault because
0: you're my guest. But th- this is where I have a real beef with the entire training business as, as well. The industry is broken, and we've allowed ourselves to be broken because mm-hmm. of spineless leadership, spineless selling, and a total lack of the customer's best interest. No one pays a trainer because they want people to learn stuff to retain it. They want them to learn it so they can implement it to improve performance. And salespeople turn up and learning and development are absolutely guilty of this. On the 22nd of June, by the time this goes out, it will have already been published. But we're having a a meeting, a a roundtable live on why sales training doesn't work and how to fix it. And I've got a couple of L&D professionals coming in to give their view. Now, what I'm really interested in is why the hell do they let the smile sheets and retention be the measure? Under no circumstances should you pay a trainer a penny just because they entertained. And I don't care how much they retain. The reality is 90% is forgotten within a week anyway, and 80% of people stop implementing all the sales training inside of two weeks. It should be paid on, uh, yes, there should be some for turning up and doing your bit, but actually, it's on the knowledge transfer and the implementation of that knowledge, the embedding of that knowledge, and the outcome. Did you know that the gold standard for online training course completion is 3%? Three
1: fucking percent. That just hurts my heart.
0: It does. That's an obscenity because you see all these companies moving over to online training because it's more convenient and, let's face it, it's cheaper. And you end up with people who don't improve. The needle doesn't move to the right. In fact, all that happens is you lose a couple of days' work for 50 or 100 people, and then they
1: backslide. And then they say, bloody training doesn't work. Of course it doesn't because you're an idiot. And and, and how many people who actually complete 100% are solo focused on the training as opposed to letting the video play on one screen while they go check Facebook on the other. Absolutely.
0: Or they're only focused on getting the thing so they can add it to their CV. All these acts of idiocy are compounded because people don't ask the right questions. There is a must-read book, which many of my listeners will have heard me refer to before. It's called The Road Less Stupid by Keith (laughs) Cunningham. It is an absolute must-read. If you run a company or you're thinking of running a company, or you're a manager, or you're an aspirational uh, entrepreneur, read that book and implement it. At the end of um, every chapter are a dozen to 20 really excruciatingly uncomfortable questions.
1: I Must really. love it. So that's now on my list. I'm going to go read The Road Less Stupid, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laugh every time I look at the title. And speaking of, of retention and behavior change, you know, language. Language yeah. is so important because it wires our neurology and that's why we've got these eight principles all of which have very sticky phrases that represent the truth that uh, that underlie them so our clients go through a few hours with us on on these principles and they become inadvertently a part of the vernacular and they tell us six months six years later they're still saying things like yay for failing they're still saying, let me be obvious they're still saying hey could you be a little bit more obvious about that because these are these are seeds that plant themselves deep in the minds and the hearts of our of our trainees and then they grow organically they grow the tactics and procedures that are support that support these principles because they've become part of their vocabulary you know it's very carefully designed to be a virus <laughs> That just can't shake itself loose. Excellent. Aaron, unfortunately, you've come to time, which
0: is heartbreaking. So would you come back?
1: (laughs) Well, I would love, uh, Marcus, it's always so fun to talk with you. Wonderful. You get me me thinking in new ways. You get me having new thoughts. It's really fun. This has been really, really very
0: interesting. Tell me, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Aaron age 23. What choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably
1: ignored? Think bigger.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> the moment I started to think significantly bigger, unreasonably, unfeasibly bigger, much bigger and better things started to happen in my world.
1: Yeah, it's tremendous. You know, I shut myself up before I said, think bigger, you're capable of more. Because it's not really so much about the capability. It's more about the tide. <laughs> Right, that when you think bigger, there's there's something that happens. There's a there's a tide that can emerge. It's been such an awesome experience to set my sights bigger and feel the tide that accumulates behind me. It's the difference between a probability thinker and a possibility
0: thinker. Mm. If you can just let your imagination go in terms of what might be possible, no matter how outlandish, how unreasonable then phenomenal things are possible.
1: But yes. you just look at Elon Musk. Uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, I'm yeah, uh, not a huge fan of the man, but what he did with the launch of Tesla, yeah, 167,000 pre-orders without having released a single unit at an average cost of customer acquisition of $6 versus Mercedes, 87,000. Units sold in the same year that he launched the uh, model three and at an average cost of customer acquisition of $970. It's thinking differently
1: and bigger. Yeah. And way bigger.
0: Okay. What would you recommend people read? You've already mentioned the uh, joy at work by Dennis Backer.
1: Yeah. And you brought up multipliers. Okay. Here's another one Cy Wakeman's book, No Ego. Ooh. Absolutely game changing book for leaders. And this is not her language, but part, part of where she and I are aligned is in the idea that there's a lot of talk about empathy and leadership right now. And here in the Pacific Northwest, there's something called Northwest Nice. Mm-hmm. And what I see- Well, north, you're practically what Canadian, aren't you? So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I've never made that connection before. <laughs> so. What happens with empathy alone, empathy alone is ruinous. The idea that I, I get where you're coming from. So here's, a, here's an analogy is that if an alcoholic comes into my home and they say, man, I really want to drink, empathy alone says, oh, I can really understand that. Here's a shot of whiskey. Or, oh, I can really understand that. And at least doesn't get in the way of the alcoholic going to my liquor cabinet. And so what I see leaders trying to do is balance empathy with trying to drive performance, but they really need to not be balanced, but instead be married into what, what I think of as compassion. Compassion is empathy combined with a dogged determination to purpose. And so in the same circumstance, what compassion says is, oh, you really want to drink, man, I get it. Let's call your sponsor can I take you to a meeting? I get it. I understand the discomfort. And if you have to drink, you can't drink here. So the job of of a leader is to not, not be nice, but to be kind, to not have empathy alone, but to have compassion. Yeah, I get it. This is hard. There is pain here. And also, you are capable of more. I expect more tomorrow than I got from you today on that note i think it's well worth wrapping up cuz that was profound so how can people get hold of you you can find me on linkedin i'm the only aaron schmuckler on linkedin and you can find me also at uh, at our website theyesworks.com theyesworks.com aaron schmuckler thank you marcus oh my gosh what an incredible pleasure
0: this is marcus Kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this insightful useful, then please listen again, take notes, and please, please, please refer it on to someone else who would benefit from it, preferably a leader or an investor. And both Aaron and I are <laughs> available on Saturday nights for entertainment. Look, if you want to get hold of me, if you want to be a guest, or you know someone who'd be a good guest as well, my email address is marcus at laughs And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.